we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and right here at the Cabin in the Woods, somewhere in Cork, Ireland, we uh, discuss stories of the mysterious and fr- things from history, and we always try to remain critical but never cynical, though that mantra was tested a little bit on this episode, I will admit. So it is it's getting towards summer, it's hot, really hot. Uh, I'm drinking coffee nonetheless because I can't stop. But um, were if, if I had any control over my own will, I'd be drinking something a little bit cooler. So my drink for this episode, not a craft beer as is often the case, it is a Badger and Dodo coffee chosen because, well, I don't know, Badgers are not cryptids, I suppose. A Dodo, if one was discovered or if reports of it were to appear, I suppose it would be a cryptid being as it's uh, supposed to be extinct. But I will plunge my coffee. I'm sitting on the steps of the cabin. Birds are twittering in the forest, and we're going to get ready for this episode, which is my chat with the fantastic Cameron McCormick, all about the father of cryptozoology, Bernard Heuvelmans, and in particular, his classification system for uh, underwater cryptids and sea serpents and things like that. Now, a few bits and bobs before we get into the episode. Uh, As always, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland. You can also get in touch on Instagram where we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. And you can help the show over on Buy Me a Coffee forward slash White Atlantic. Big thanks to Jen in Essex who did so this week. Uh, Jen, you've helped us out before, so mega, mega, mega thanks. I know you tried to come up with some sort of funny alternative name, so uh, we wouldn't know it was you, but we do. And we thank you very, very much. It was very sweet of you to come up with a false name. Oh, that was a lot more hot than I thought the coffee was going to be. Oh, I also want to do a shout out to Eddie Guimont, who is obviously, if you know the show, big, uh, big friend of the show. He's been on a number of times and absolutely top guy when it comes to discussing um, mysterious matters, especially um, with his sort of historical credentials. So um, he's working on a new show called The Impossible Archive over, yeah, with Bill Black. And this is a brand new show. There is two episodes out at the moment as I record this, and they are tremendous. They're both about the current UFO slash UAP thing. And um, their kind of gimmick is that they're both historians tackling mysterious subjects, and they're off to a really, really, really good start. And listeners of this show will absolutely enjoy that. And um, Eddie really knows his stuff, as always. And I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to the UAP thing this time around, I, I got into it the first time in 2017, and it sounds to me like a lot of the same people um, pulling the same stunts, but who knows, there were, there were some, there's some interesting people um, who are interested in it, that's all I'll say for now, but um, the guys really uh, explain who all of the main players are behind it and what their background is, and that's the, the Impossible Archive. I also want to do a quick shout out to the latest Plastic Plesiosaur podcast, which I really enjoyed. I was out camping and I stayed up late, kind of spooking myself listening to this one. They have an interview with the guy who was like a producer behind Monster Quest, which 
I, I'm not a fan of, and I wasn't expecting to, you know, much out of this episode, but he was a tremendously interesting guy, and they're excellent hosts, and they just continually have these really um productive conversations between skeptics and believers, and I really, I really enjoyed their show. They've only got about five episodes so far, and um, that's the, the plastic plesiosaur. Like, if you had asked me where Monster Quest came from, I would have said, oh, it was invented in a lab by you know, a bunch of cigar-chomping executives who just don't care. They're like, ah, what are the kids into now? Monsters, is it? Uh, but no, the, the guy who um, who was producer is tremendously interested in the subject, cares deeply about it, and is a tremendously good storyteller. And uh, they, yeah, it's, it's a great episode. Go check that out. I myself have appeared on a few unusual things this week that you should check out as well. The YouTube program, The Ghost Trail, hosted by friends of mine, that is Caspian and Joe, who've helped out with this show as well before. I've done a voiceover for them on their most recent episode. Um, so it's just me reading a little poem. So if you can't get enough of my dulcet tones, go check that one out. Uh, the episode is called An Abandoned Corn Mill. That is because as well as um, doing ghost stories, they do a lot of sort of, what do you call it? Urban exploration, where you go and find empty buildings and take pictures of them. Uh, so they do a lot of that kind of exploration stuff as well. Bloomsday is is upon us well, as I'm recording this. Bloomsday is, of course, the day of celebration for the work and life of the artist James Joyce. It's it's called that. It's named after the main character from Ulysses. And um, I have some connections with people who are involved in the Montreal Bloomsday, of all things. And they've asked me to um, sort of host or interview um, a friend of mine who is Dr. Kerry McElroy, who's an expert in the history of... Um, film interpretations of Ireland, amongst other things. So we're going to be talking about um, sort of Irish-American perceptions of each other um, and the history of Irish film. I'm going to try and get a little bit of folklore in there as well. We're going to be talking about Derby O'Gill and the Little People. We're going to be talking about the, the Death Coach, which is a local superstition that shows up in that film and actually one I've come across recently um, in the not-too-distant vicinity of here, but that story will have to wait. So I think by the time you hear this, that episode or it's not an episode it's just like a show that'll be out and available and i'll put links to all this stuff as usual in the notes finally i read a great book this week that i want to recommend i saw it reviewed in 14 times and i was like god 14 times like i don't have enough books to read and and i just couldn't say no to this one and i bought it and it was kind of short and i just blew through it ignoring the 50 million books that are staring at me on the shelf with bookmarks in them this is called brazil that never was it's by aj lease and it's from uh, some some fancy pro Notting Hill editions, wouldn't you wouldn't you know? And um, basically, it's a lovely kind of old fashioned sackcloth cover or whatever you call that stuff. And it's bright green, and it has a quote from the legendary Percy Fawcett on the front. It's, it says, "I have probed from three sides for the surest way in. I've seen enough to make any risk worthwhile in order to see more. And our story, when we return from the next expedition, may thrill the world." Percy Fawcett, of course, was from Torquay and probably didn't sound like that, but he was trying to make his way in an upper-class world, so who knows. Percy Fawcett, of course, famous, like, pseudo-late-era Victorian explorer who disappears in the Mato Grosso in the Amazon in 1925, and then people have been obsessed with him ever since. This book is tremendous. Like, this, if you enjoyed Lost City of Zed, either the book or the film, you know, they're, they're pretty good. They're kind of old now. That was about 15 years ago. A lot more information has come out. This book, like, supersedes that. It mentions it, but it goes a lot further, and basically it explains how Fawcett was a massive, massive 
spiritualist slash theosophist slash making up his own pseudo spiritualist religion and uh, man the connections to stuff here his brother Douglas Fawcett wrote Jules Verne type science fiction he wrote Swallowed by an Earthquake and Hartman the Anarchist and all these crazy novels uh, full of elements that actually paralleled what later happened to his brother Percy so this book is primarily written from the point of view of A.J. Lease as a kid growing up in Britain in the 50s kind of seeing the, the the last of the empire you know the last of the great trading port cities and seeing them you know and having all these dreams about you know what brazil must be like and what it would be like to travel to these tropical places and i, I you know i had those kind of fantasies when i was a kid and i would read stuff about people like percy fawcett and percy fawcett of course lest we forget did his stint right here in cork for about three years i think close to the beginning of the 20th century for about uh, 1903 something like that he was stationed right here in cork harbor on an island called spike island now this is in the lost city of zed film a bit they show him in cork uh, you know the text says he's in cork but he's in some kind of like vast landscape of fields spike island is in fact quite small and um, they tried to market it as um, ireland's alcatraz because it's a pri- it was a prison for many years so it's a prison on an island in the cove looking over at the the town that's now called cove that used to be called queenstown which is of course the last port of call for a ship called the titanic but you've probably never heard of that one so love percy fawcett love anything to do with him and if you're a fawcett freak as as writers tend to call us check out brazil that never was we're getting closer to bernard huvelman's and we are getting closer to the sea serpents and myself and cameron on this episode off air decided we're not going to try and pronounce his name correctly french wise we're just going to say bernard huvelman so i'm afraid you'll have to put up with that he is generally referred to as the father of cryptozoology so he's one of the earliest people in the 1950s writing about mysterious creatures in the way that we would now recognize as being cryptozoology he um was an early user of the term whether or not he actually coined it um there i've seen conflicting information for basically he was a, a belgian french guy he i think he was born in la Havre, but his parents were like they had escaped from belgium for some reason <clears throat> he himself uh, trained in zoology and then later had to escape from the nazis apparently on four separate occasions made his living as a jazz singer um had some so he had he had biological training but i believe he never he never worked in it and effectively his life has changed by an article written by the scottish ivan t sanderson in the saturday evening post i believe in 1948 about the possibility of there being living dinosaurs somewhere in africa so this is sort of mokile and bembe type territory and bernard huvelmans is utterly changed by this he follows it for his whole life and he almost supersedes um, ivan t sanderson in in kind of being famous for crypto stuff they do work together for a while and on this episode we're going to talk occasionally about the minnesota iceman that's a case in the late 60s where and the the two guys are staying together i believe at sanderson's house and they get word that there is a supposed kind of sasquatch corpse in ice in a block of ice going around and um it's 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 clearly uh, like a a museum or a fairground sideshow it's being run by a guy named hansen and they're not allowed to thaw it but they're allowed to go and see it and draw pictures of it and take measurements and they come to all sorts of you know far-fetched conclusions about the you know the the existence of you know mysterious creatures based on this kind of hokey 
fairground sideshow thing. So we'll be talking about that quite a bit. And they, they decided to name it Bozo, which probably didn't help with their attempts to write scientific papers uh, about this particular creature. What else do I want to say about Hubelman's? Um, he's, so he's written a few important books that we will be mentioning in the episode. In 1955, he writes On the Trail of, of Unknown Animals, which is then translated into English in 1958. I really enjoyed this myself. I wish I'd read it as a kid. I'm certain it would have blown my mind. Um, and, and there's he kind of sets out the stall for cryptozoology here, and it's pretty impressive just how many ideas are still with us. Like he he's chronicling and and kind of putting in front of large numbers of people for the first time a lot of these ideas. Um, and then he writes on the in the wake of the sea serpents, which is the main book we're going to be talking about because that is the area of Cameron's super super interest. So I think that's everything I want to. Oh, he he also he's he's part of the origins of the Center for uh, the International Society for Cryptozoology. I believe he's elected as the first president. He then comes to feud with them and leaves because they disagree over sort of definitions of cryptozoology and how to do cryptozoology. And uh, we'll we'll get into that as we go. They also had a a journal which they kept for a several couple of decades we're talking early 80s until about the turn of the 21st century and that's yeah that's some of the background you're going to need now my guest is Cameron McCormick Cameron has written about cryptozoology for a good many years and his work shows up in all kinds of places online and we're going to be mentioning some of that as well he uh, has worked with all the great people doing some of the best analysis of this stuff online at the moment, as far as I'm concerned. He, he's, a, he's a fantastic artist, and he's, he's really into recapturing that style of, that very particular style of art that's used uh, to depict old-fashioned cryptid stories, which I really, really love. And he is a huge, huge, huge Bernard Huvelman super fan, and has been since he was a kid. And in particular, was was really fixated for years on the sea serpent's idea. And we're going to talk about, you know, Huvelman's you know, really odd categorization system for all the different sea serpent sightings from all around the world. Quick note, this isn't the first time this week that Cameron has spoken about this. He actually just a few days ago um, was part of a sort of a roundtable discussion about the history of the Cryptozoology Society and the journal I did listen to a bit of it, but I, I stopped because I thought there was actually going to be a bit of crossover and I don't want to sort of take on other people's ideas or opinions. Um, but that is is absolutely a great listen and anyone who likes this show will like that as well. So I will put a link to that talk about the International Society of Cryptozoology um, in the notes as well because it's it's absolutely worth your time. Finally, Hevelmans occupies this unusual position where he's very well remembered and very revered by a lot of people in cryptozoology, but his actual ideas, his actual like attempt to put science onto these stories um, has not left much of an imprint. There are not many people who still subscribe to it or who are doing what he is doing. So for that reason, though we usually try not to be cynical, some of the ideas that Huvelmans came up with that we do talk about in this episode are pretty absurd. We do have a bit of a laugh about them, so I hope that isn't a problem for anybody. Anyway, let's get on with the interview. I'm Cameron McCormick. I occasionally go by the screen name The Ward Deakington on assorted blogs and other projects. And I've been involved in the world of cryptozoology since, I guess, the late 90s. I've had some sort of activity, which is before I was even a teenager. 
So, oh my God. Um, I would say growing the initial interest in cryptozoology for me was when I saw a book called um, Monsters of the Sea by Richard Ellis. And I flipped around back and he's like, dude, there's like octopuses with 200 foot arm spans out there. That's totally bonkers. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna spend uh, decades being into cryptozoology from now on. So yeah, that was, that was my initial introduction to that. And then I kept on hearing about Hoovelman's <laughs> and his name comes up like a rash and seemingly everything involved in cryptozoology now. I've never heard of that much before. And I guess we're gonna call him Hoovelman's instead of Huevelman or, oh my God. Or whatever you can manage <laughs> but yeah i somehow managed to get a copy of his book um in the wake of the sea serpents when i was 13 years old and it was kind of i want to get into lovecraft yet but it was basically like getting my hands on the necronomicon there's hundreds and hundreds of pages all yellow and like every page is something i've never heard before it's totally bonkers I've like I've, I've been annotating it just for like all these mind blowers he has on every page. He's like, dude, what if what if there's squids that are 500 feet long? It's like I'm just throwing it out there as what I believe. He was having true. fun, wasn't he? He was. Um... Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was world building. Uh, he, he uses, is, I think, he uses the phrase "romantic zoology." I, does he use that, or does somebody say that about him? But it was, um, what was that? I think he might have used it early on because of Willie Lay wrote mm. a book about romantic zoology. And oh my God, I, I'm not very clear on why and how the word cryptozoology came about because initially he said Ivan Sanderson coined it. And then the later publications, he's like kind of downplayed Sanderson's involvement. So at some point, he started calling himself a cryptozoologist instead of a romantic zoologist. Yeah. And he definitely, <laughs> because I was reading the, uh, cryptozoology society journals this week and um, he definitely at one point in one of those letters claims to have uh, coined it himself yes yeah, somewhere somewhere in these books I'm something sure i read this week anyway i think it was that it is contradictory i've i've definitely seen the opposite claim from him he's like yeah ivan sanderson invented it when he was in college like <laughs> maybe it's like steampunk it's one of those phrases that at the beginning nobody is comfortable with and they're you know they see it as a derogatory thing and then later on people are like no no i was i was calling <laughs> it that since way back <laughs> yeah like maybe ivan was like joking around with them or something he's like oh yeah i figured that out well before <laughs> but they they did have a falling out over the minnesota Iceman. wait a minute i gotta back up a second because that book so Bernard Hovelman, what oh God, Hovelman's, <laughs> he was he was visiting America for a launch party for his book in the wake of the sea serpents, and uh, he had two parties. One of them was at um, uh, Mr. Wang's house, one of his publishers. Then he had another party at the American Museum of Natural History with Ivan Sanderson there, and then they heard about something weird out in Minnesota called the Minnesota Iceman, and they went out to see it. And that's, that is, I can't believe it was that direct a connection. Like, it was yeah. like a one to two. And the two, like, the two of them went out together and had an adventure in, in, in a trailer <laughs> looking for a, yeah. a, frozen, a frozen Sasquatch. <laughs> Bernard was going to go 
South America to Uganda as well. And he's like, I'm gonna go visit a carnival and uh, <laughs> get fooled by that, apparently. And then, yeah, him and Ivan had competing publications about the Iceman with different hypotheses. I guess Ivan's wasn't as like another that was really officially published in any sense, but. Yeah, I think Bernard thought he kind of scooped him and they had a falling out. And then Bernard said, uh, yeah, I'm going to discredit you for, I'm going to take over cryptozoology from you. <laughs> and Ivan, Ivan oh. was, he didn't last too much longer. He died before the journal got started. So then Bernard kind of got himself into the uh, patronly role there. Let's let's back up a little bit and just so we'll okay. set maybe we'll set the scene a little bit because there's so much stuff here. There's so much lore, and some listeners will be familiar with stuff like the Minnesota Iceman and and Ivan Sanderson, and some and some folks will not. So yeah, we <laughs> start out by saying so. Who, who was he before this took over his life? Like he was he a guy with a science background? What was his? Does he have an origin story? He was he is an actual scientist. He has a PhD on uh, aardvark teeth. I don't know if it's available anywhere. And he's had, um, I think he only got it in a year or so, but um, he was also apparently a, um, he couldn't get work as a zoologist. So he was a stand-up comic and he was a consultant no. on Tintin books. No, <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, oh my God. Um, so he's, he's, has... he's French and he's Belgian, right? So he's in, he's in that part yeah. of the world when that style was... of comics is big. And this is the, 1930s and 40s i suppose yeah and he was um he really he i think he says he escaped from nazis on four separate occasions in yep. world war ii <laughs> and yeah according to brian regal he was like he brian regal kind of had a little little like armchair psychologizing about him and he thought that like bernard always had this like anti-authoritarian streak and it might have been because he was like a super he really didn't like Nazis, apparently. He just he hated them. So that's, he always was like, oh. That strikes me as important, Cameron. That shows up again in so many episodes, like where we look at these fellows, or usually guys, to be fair, who are, you know, see themselves as mavericks going against the system. And, and I do want to talk later about, like, to what degree does he bring the sort of paranoid, uh, you know, conspiracy mindset into what he believed? Because when I was a kid growing up, I, I, I didn't know who he was because he wasn't in the books I had. He maybe because he wasn't a, an Anglophone, he, you know, he, he kind of he's taken out of the story. I had so many books about the Loch Ness Monster and about, you know, mystery hominids and stuff. But his name wasn't wasn't there. And it was only much later that I discovered that he is this revered figure and he's considered the father of of cryptozoology. So it got me thinking about his legacy and to what degree you know, did he help to shape the way it is now and, and the way it was for many decades uh, based on his own his own thinking and his own kind of attempts to explain things? Yeah, he. I would say revered is a pretty good way to describe him in the, like the cryptozoology literature. He's always been, I think perhaps because he was writing in a different language for the most part, his work just seemed very distant and like almost a little mysterious. And he was like, he was, uh, I mean, he was a qualified zoologist on paper. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he was, um, he was just seemed like such an authoritative figure. He's like, you know, like the way he writes is so, I, I guess we describe it as Baroque. 
He just makes these yes. proclamations about, uh, he's like, oh, that fool, Sir Richard Owen. Like, <laughs> He has a re- so I, re- I reread bits of um, on the so one of his classic early books is on the track of unknown animals, which oh, I think yeah. is 1955, and then gets its English print in 1958. And he he has it in for uh, the French scientist George Cuv. Uh, how do you say this? Oh, Cuvier's Cuvier's maxim- what's that? Cuvier's I'm- maxim that is like there are no large yes <laughs> vertebrates to be discovered. He's like, oh. yeah. <laughs> So he's like the stand-in figure for like boring, stodgy science that doesn't want to, you know, follow his cool new ideas. Yeah, and he's really, um, he's really fired up about what the Victorians said for some reason. I don't, I don't know why he's like, oh yeah, or even earlier for Cuvier, but he's like really charged up about that. Yeah. I don't know why he's like a little, he's always a little anachronistic, which is kind of another one of his uh, traits. He's like, ah, I don't need any of that new yeah. Well, literature. I wonder if the Victorian stuff is, is important because, I mean, listeners to the show will know I'm obsessed with Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World. And like, I, I'm fascinated when, when I read Darren Nature's book about hunting monsters and he, he talks about uh, King Kong being released in 1933. And, you know, it comes out in a certain month in London, for example. And then a few weeks later, you have the first major Loch Ness monster sighting. You have the Spicer sighting. And he just, he just puts those two things together and says, look, we, we don't know this. We can't prove it. But, you know, culture does, pop culture does affect how people think, how they interpret things. And, you know, soon enough, when stuff is showing up in, in fiction or culture, it starts to show up in things that are supposed to be real. And I thought, I found that really, really fascinating. And I, I, I find myself trying to make those connections now. So, like, was Huvelman somebody who grew up reading that kind of pulp literature you know, based in stuff like The Lost World, because in Unknown Animals, he references it over and over and over again. The first chapter is called There Are Lost Worlds Everywhere. It's like he's setting out a stall saying, I read this book when I was a kid and I got excited. And, you know, I'm sure you a lot of people say about, you know, people looking for Bigfoot and stuff that it's it's this attempt to, you know, remystify the landscape or you know, bring some mystery back into the, into the, you know, the, because we don't like the fact that the world feels like it's getting smaller. There's no hidden places anymore. There's no big mysteries anymore. And a lot of that is rooted in very Victorian stuff, very often colonial stuff, but, you know, usually guys going out having adventures in exotic places, looking for either lost cities, lost races, your, your Haggards, your Conan Doyles. And I think that's got to be an important touch point. I think so. It's um, I'm going to have to, I forgot to read this article, but he seemed to have some sort of nebulous interest in things other than ordinary zoology. I think it's probably doesn't help that his biography hasn't been translated into English yet. But um, yeah, from what I can tell, like Brian Regal's book that I think is probably the most biography we have in English about him. He was um, mentioning like there was something there's something lurking under the surface with Bernard, but it wasn't until uh, 1948 that he read an Ivan Sanderson article called "There Could Be Dinosaurs," and that's when that's the genesis. So the fact that it is living dinosaurs makes me think, yeah, that that is a real lost world mm. connection there, and it seems like it's about the time that like pulp literature has uh, like the. 20s and 30s seems to have a lot of living dinosaur stuff. Yeah. 
I've been trying to get a hold of that because I, I desperate. I would love to see. It, it might be in all of these books are relatively difficult to get. They're in that like yeah. not sweet spot of they're out of they're you know not necessarily out of copyright but out of print. So I, I think it's problem with Sanderson as all his books have like goofy names like things and more things. Oh yeah, <laughs> I have that lying around Do somewhere you? here. Oh my god. So I suspect oh, that article is in one of those books. I think it's collated in one of those books. Yeah, could be wrong. I, I don't think it's things or more things, but yeah, it's an, he has a lot of books too. Why do you think Sanderson was not did not go down in history as the father of cryptozoology? He was doing it earlier, wasn't he? Yeah, he had a lot broader. Yeah, he was doing it earlier, but he had a lot broader interest, and it seems that. Bernard Hoveman's, I guess I'm going with that pronunciation. <laughs> Bernard Hoveman's pronunciation or a publication of uh, On the Track of Unknown Animals kind of re inspired Sanderson to get more involved in cryptozoology. There's definitely a play between them I don't really understand, but Ivan was, yeah, his books are kind of something else. I remember he, um, he there was one instance he was uh, hypothesizing about teleporting ants and stuff like that. Hmm. And invisible people throwing rocks. It was definitely, um, definitely wasn't as theoretically principled as cryptozoology, which is just like <laughs> searching for unknown animals. He was just like paranoid, unified, paranormal, unified field theory kind of guy. I, I get the impression he was more mainstream than Huberman's. Like he was writing these popular science books, and he was on the radio, and everybody knew who he was. Is that fair? Was he a more yeah, mainstream he, figure? I think he was, I have to remember, uh, I think he was actually the an editor for Argosy, the science editor for a magazine. And he was, according to Cryptozoology books, he was like on TV as kind of like, I don't know if you know who Jack Hanna is, just some guy who brings animals onto like Johnny Carson. Mm. Apparently that was Ivan Sanderson. He yeah. just had a lot of media exposure. But then he was also writing about super weird stuff at the exact same time. It just seemed unbelievably busy. Yeah, he, he always struck me as a guy who, well, he was a media figure first, and therefore anything he was saying or anything he came up with, well, you have to bear in mind that, you know, he, he needs to get a show or a book out of this. And Yeah, I, and it's the tonality of his articles, too. It's really hard to tell for me if, like, how serious he's being. Yeah. There was, I remember his one about, um, like, 20-foot-tall humans living off the um, Pacific Northwest coast. He's like, now bear with me here. This is going to get some <laughs> crazy speculations, but it must be true. And yeah, that's. I haven't even seen that list as a cryptid. It's. I don't think no. cryptozoologists want to even talk about that one. So, yeah. do, you, do you think Hubelmans was a true believer? Like, I think Sanderson might have believed at the beginning, or you know, maybe maybe he, he's like you know Winston from Ghostbusters. You know, if, if there's a, a book in it, I'll believe whatever you say. <laughs> But I, I, I feel like Huberman's meant it. I feel like he believed it. Yeah, he definitely he was definitely a strong believer. I think he, everything I can tell about how he was writing that book, he was, he was definitely a very strong believer. In like sea serpents being mammals, and he was yeah. like eh, kind of wishy washy on the reptiles. I was, I just looked at his list of cryptids, and he's like, eh, yeah, the reptiles. I don't really care about them. And he's like these mammals man <laughs> oh so is that why he like wanted to retcon all of the sea monsters as just his personal interest in mammals just prefers them he 
that's a confusing thing. He also believed in living dinosaurs, apparently. Mm. So why he was fixated on that idea? Because I guess he had this idea that the the um, sea serpents being reptilian was a um, he was kind of fixated on being like an English invention. He's like those English naturalists. <laughs> they they had discovered those ichthyosaurs, and I guess they call them like nelosaurians. And they're all they're all bloody English. He was going back to the back to the Icelandic. Where every because they didn't know what what the heck a reptile was like Icelandic sea monsters all have like assorted mammalian shades to them I guess <laughs> that and yeah I guess he was kind of building off of that but I'm oh, looking yeah. at uh, I'm looking at one of Sanderson's articles here from the cryptozoology anthology the Robert Dees Dees book and uh, oh yeah yeah he he was British and uh, <laughs> he's he's writing about them as well in the 1950s. Yeah. You know, yeah, that is funny. 40, that Ivan, sorry. Ivan seems to have not been a living plesiosaur guy either. Because he wrote a straight, straight on, like non-cryptosological book about cetaceans. He's like, well, what if there are protoceteids and basil swords out there still? <laughs> I yeah, that's weird. I didn't really think about that. But he was, yeah, I guess he was even more of a rebel. But yeah, Hoovens is like, man, he loves his mammals, even if it makes very very little sense i'd like to i'd like to hear more about like his attempts to make cryptozoology kind of respectable you know when he first comes up with this and he's doing his best to uh, make it seem like a, a serious thing and he wants this to be scientific and he wants people to take it seriously and, and you you mentioned like he manages to get um this grand launch for the book with some august uh, scientific body. how how did that happen and uh, it seems that ivan sanderson had enough connections to get that party going maybe huh. in conjunction with his publisher but yeah it seems that bernard wasn't really that much out well he was a little bit of an outsider of the mainstream but he still had museum connections and he definitely seemed to know zoologists so like he wasn't far it seems somehow he wasn't really i, I guess the word i'm looking for is he wasn't on the fringe <laughs> quite <laughs> yeah he was a little fringy he was getting towards yeah. the edge so he was, was he coming from a place of having some credibility like had he been well you say he but he wasn't a published zoologist prior to this was he yeah he had a phd but he couldn't get work so right. he was like work doing like jazz and all that stuff and <laughs> he published books on like from bambula to bebop and all <laughs> all that stuff so yeah he was a semi <laughs> oh man i gotta read that one yeah he that's funny. He was like, he had affiliations, but he didn't have a job. So there's like some outsider status right there. And yeah, it's for credibility. Oh my God. He, mm -hmm. um, his first, I would say his, um, on the track of unknown animals, wasn't too, it actually, I read another book, um, by Herbert Went called, um, out of Noah's Ark. And it seems to have like the formatting was very similar. Like, uh, Herbert Went's book was a little bit, it was a little bit more serious, but he was also, it's like a naturalist tone with different regions. He's like talking about cryptids as if they were plausible and real. And uh, Willie Labe was kind of writing like that as well. So on the track of unknown animals seemed to like, it was all about the mystery animals instead of just partially about them. It was like a little bit of a, a little bit of a kick into the, I guess, romantic zoology. Maybe, maybe the focus area. was what, because I know Willie Lay was, um, 
I mean, he was well known for writing other things. He was writing about, um, you know, the, the ideas about space colonization and 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 stuff like this. So he was known for lots of different things. So maybe maybe one of like uh, Huvelman's kind of innovations is to just focus. I'm going to do this one thing. I'm going to give it a name, and you know, sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah, even now it's kind of hard to find anyone who's just focused on only the mystery animals. It's always kind of lumped in with other. I guess like weird shitology, you would say. Mm. <laughs> now, when when I was yeah, a kid, that weird I, I was always puzzled by that because I, I I you know, if you take these things at face value, like when you're a kid, you're like, well, this is about animals and it's about mystery animals. It's effectively some sort of biological question. So why would those same people also be interested in UFOs or ghosts or like to me there was no obvious, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about it in a sociological way the way I am now. Um, and, and that's why I kind of wonder, so, so like Sander, uh, Huvelmans, for example, in, in his opening article in the first journal for the, for the society that he helps to, or that he's involved with at the beginning, before he takes off in a huff, I believe, <laughs> he says, uh, this is distinctly not an occult thing. And he's trying to separate, you know, the, he's trying to say, this is a, like a nuts and bolts phenomena. These are animals, these are creatures. And it's like, already he knows that this has the possibility of kind of going off off piste and going into the woo (laughs) yeah it was it's a little mystifying exactly how he thought the um what he thought was making the animals not be found that was it was just something that was never mentioned but like it's a big problem and one of his letters in that journal was also implying that like the hidden in cryptozoology like the literal meaning was implying that they were being quote unquote hidden by being ignored by the authorities so that's kind of getting close to conspiratorial thinking and that's yeah. a little um it's a little nerve-wracking like okay so was there much oh, of that in his writing subsequently because i read that paragraph and i thought you you could interpret it that way it could also just be a translation thing where he means hidden like unknown like yeah like did he have that conspiratorial bench like i often say on the show you know, people, when a new weird idea comes up and at first, you know, there's a possibility that maybe it's real. And then as the years go by and the evidence doesn't come up, people either have to get paranormal about it or they have to get conspiratorial about it to kind of explain why there's no evidence. And did he eventually get like that or did he, was he always like that? He was a little conspiratorial in um, the Sea Serpent book. He was like, man, they're just not, they're just not trying. I, it wasn't so much as like, wasn't any um wasn't anyone working against him it was so much as neglect was the reason that it couldn't be found but yeah his later work seemed to imply it was a little bit more active than not looking which i don't even understand how that would function yeah it was it's completely mystifying it's it's something i'm gonna have to i have to reread his letters and try to work out his wording it probably doesn't help that it's translated but it's yeah. pretty mystifying like what who who and why do they I always, I, there's a kind of inevitability to that stuff it always shows up even in things where you would think on the face of it 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 wouldn't you know like with ufo stuff the conspiracy stuff it feels like it's been there since the beginning but then and it can be very heavy and it can be very dark and then i'm thinking oh i'll read a book about you know living dinosaurs or something this would be lighter and then sooner like sooner or later <sighs> Oh, you know, it, people start believing that the U.S. Forest Service are actively, you know, hiding something about Bigfoot, and it, the conspiracy stuff just inevitably comes in. 
Yeah, it's probably just going to be too much cognitive dissonance at some point. It's not even, you're like, oh, I'm a great consultant. I guess he, oh my God, I guess he pictured himself as being a consultant of some sort too. And he's not really, it was, it was almost his exact wording, if I believe correctly. He um, was like, I'm a zoological consultant. They send me the anecdotes. I sit there and read them and I tell them exactly what to find. But yeah, at some point, like, yeah, you're not really doing your job quite quite well there, buddy. Uh, no one's really found these in a few decades. Plus, every single cryptozoologist has completely different ideas, too. So mm. kind of, what are we paying you for? It doesn't really build on itself the way regular science does. You know, it's not like new information builds upon previous ideas. It's more like, well, maybe they're, you know, somebody comes along and says, well, you know, maybe they're pinnipeds <laughs> instead of. Yeah. And there's been, so the oh, sea serpents have like strange history that they're probably the most classified sea monsters. And there's, yeah, people are always just kind of monkeying around and they were still doing it until. I think Michael Woodley was the last that I'm aware of probably a decade or so ago. But yeah, for some reason, people really want to classify them, but they just, it's not, yeah, as you say, it doesn't build on anything. It's just kind of competing ideas and we're just getting decades further and further in the future and nothing's <laughs> being resolved. But I think when he was writing his book, which I guess he started writing probably in the late fifties, they're really I, th I think it can kind of make a better argument of like things being unknown because there were, I'm trying to think of the diversity of beaked whales that were only known from skeletons and no life appearances was probably, probably quite a few of those, probably um, Tasmacetus and Indopacetus at least, probably a whole, whole bunch of other ones I can't remember. It seemed there was like, after the 60s or so, things started to get a little bit more settled, but there definitely were, there definitely were sizable gaps in knowledge. I think when he was writing that, someone could definitely argue about this, but like, there might have been, the sea serpent notion might have been just teetering on plausible for him to get a party at the American Museum of Natural History. Right. But yeah, he, into the 80s and 90s, but I guess he still was believing in that. It was um, it's getting a little, little <laughs> bit harder to believe. It's as big as the oceans are uh there's a lot of human activity there that's really some of those arguments he's like yeah people don't even fish down the southern hemisphere we don't know what's down there <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the let's get into some detail about the serpents and and like things that he believed about them because he, he had did he have nine categories you have a you have a marvelous yeah. illustration <laughs> showing he had, this he had nine and i would say that with an asterisk because i'm not I was trying to parse out exactly what he was believing today. And yeah, he's, um, all right. Uh, so he had just nine theoretical categories. He got rid of two of them. He's like, there's one called the yellow belly, which is a gigantic black and yellow striped tadpole, like something or the other. And he's like, ah, I guess that's probably not true. He, Roy Mackle came along and said it might have been a tunicate colony. So he's like, yeah, maybe it's just a giant tunicate colony. And there's another one called the uh, father of all the turtles. And he kind of, for some reason, and, and this is a very good, this, this is kind of damning. He just kind of like, yeah, just kind of checked those reports in the other sea serpent categories somehow, even though it's a giant turtle. So yeah, he had seven. And then 
um, as of his cryptozoology list, he's like, maybe the marine, he believed that there was a marine saurian, but he thought it was mosasaurs and thalatosuchian crocodiles. Independently, two, two ancient survivors. And uh, as we now know, the the one that got blew, blown up by the uh, U-28 uh, boat. Oh, didn't, it, that didn't exactly happen, and that's kind of what his whole case was resting on. Can can so. we tell that story in case any? I mean, it's been it's been oh. talked about online this week. Um, by by Darren Nash talked about it, I think. But uh, in case anybody doesn't know, because this is a this is an Irish um, connection, if I recall yeah. correctly. Yeah, it's definitely a White Atlantic weird. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't always go <laughs> Irish, but if there's a connection, I'll make it. So what what is what is this story with the U boat and the crocodile creature? So the story goes that um, U-boat shot down another vessel and as it was sinking, the boiler exploded and shot this thing that I think 100 feet into the air somehow. It, it sunk implausibly fast and it blew something out of the water implausibly high and it was a 60 foot long crocodile, supposedly, <laughs> because this it gets repeated all the time. It's called like, there's some websites called like the U-28 abomination or something really <laughs> lured like that. It's like, oh man, it's a victim of war. But yeah, it, it turns out that um, the story was told decades after the fact and that um, there were actually tons and tons of eyewitnesses who conspicuously didn't see that when it happened, including the actual eyewitness. And it um, it's apparently a drawing of a stuffed baby <laughs> I guess an alligator. It might have been. Um, it might have been just hanging somewhere and got illustrated. That's kind of what Hooverman's whole uh, category is hinging on. There aren't very many reports, and that was most detailed. So, <laughs> this stuff like that makes me wonder what what would happen if you're like. Um, I believe Mike Dash is the one that did the research into that. If you did like a ton of research into each and every one of these. 600 or so accounts but they all just like they all just explode like that like the boiler that i guess the boiler did explode in real life but it didn't it didn't blow out a crocodile like a lot of the sea serpent stories i know are sort of 19th century stuff and all i can do is presume that they like until i get better evidence all i can do is presume that they're just a symptom of that 19th century thing about these crazy newspaper reports that were just I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I really understand the social context of this like did, did ordinary people know that this these stories were just to be to be laughed at or did they take them seriously was it like the weekly world news you know where you just oh yeah there's that crazy paper but whatever reason there was a a, a thing in, especially in the late the second half of, of the century where I mean that's where a lot of early you know wild man stories come from that then later get attached to the Bigfoot story and like that's my understanding of like the origin of at least some of this sea serpent stuff obviously some of it's older and you you do have you know you have medieval stories and stuff but like in in the form that we know it I think that's where it comes from yeah and there's very few exceptions I think the uh the big two are the the Valhalla and the uh Daedalus sightings which were done by well they weren't oceanographers but they're done by scientists and they're actually published in i think either books or maybe even a journal in one case the thing about them is they kind of don't look like the rest of the things that wovelmans is um proposing they're pretty vague like the the daedalus one he's like maybe it's a giant seal 
Is that the one where there's a famous illustration of this? It's black and white, and there's a head coming out of the water in flip, and it's smooth and kind of almost looks like like a Sicilian or a, some kind of amphibian. Yeah, and it's it's kind of just like a vague like a log or something. But he was um, he was that was definitely and but well, he was really really fixated on the appearance that the illustrator gave it in a newspaper. But that wasn't actually what the uh, but the actual uh, I guess there was an eyewitness sighting or illustration, and it was way more vague. It was probably I guess probably a uh, Rorqual whale of some sort is the current thinking because yeah it was from a distance and it didn't really it was kind of like something long on the horizon and the um the Valhalla one was it was a had a strange long neck and a kind of rubbery fin off the back and I guess it kind of looks like a sea lion of some sort there actually are sea lions off the northeast coast of Brazil they can wander that far so it's also kind of vague and it just does not look like what the other things he was proposing, even though theoretically, um, theoretically it should be like a big, um, I guess like a corner piece of that. Bruce Champagne, the other sea serpent researcher later on, did make those two into types, which are completely bizarre. But it's uh, <laughs> story for a different day. There's a book called so, so Huberman's book about sea serpents is called um, in the in, in the, the wake, wake of the yeah. somebody wrote a book I saw today called in the wake of Bernard Huberman's yeah that's by Michael Woodley who okay. um, he I I don't think he's involved in the field anymore but he made his own classification system but he um, he kind of semi famously there was um, there was another book about how sea serpents were getting or it might be caused by entanglements or the sightings were caused by entanglements. And he kind of just like totally lambasted Woodley for still going, doing the classification system thing like this late into the history. It's like, who was it who said, um, you know, before you try and figure out what's going on, make sure that there is something to figure out. I mean, that comes into my head because he's spending all this time, you know, having great fun with all of this speculative zoology but it, they're based on reports that don't hold up to the yeah. nearest scrutiny. So this is a this is a, a you know this is a literary problem or a uh, you know a reporting problem or a journalistic problem, and he he's enjoying himself, <laughs> you know, but, being really creative. Yeah, I should probably uh, I should probably go over some of the types now. <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah, I'd love to. What are he they? Has, he has the long necked. A sea animal of fairly large size, much bigger than the biggest pinnipeds, and recognized by its very long, slender neck. So it's basically a sea lion. And oh my god, how big does he say it is? He he says it's one of the smaller sea serpents, only sixty-five feet in length. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's also amphibious, and it is. I believe in later years he someone else named Peter Costello used the same creature and. He, put it in all sorts of freshwater huh. bodies of water. That's, <laughs> that's a different, that's a story for a different day. So, oh yeah, he then has the, uh, the merhorse, which I think they actually mistranslated from hippocamp in the original French, but it's called the merhorse in English. An huh. elongated sea animal of large size, characterized by a sort of large mane hanging down its neck. So he thinks it's also a pinniped, but for some reason he says it might be a Cyrenian too. 
It's totally bonkers. Can we can we do it, some? Um, uh, what 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 are some of these terms for uh, folks who are not zoologists? He, he thought it might be a sea cow. Oh, oh right, a dugong. <laughs> yeah, to, and it has a red mane, and he oh. he thought that the, maybe the red mane helps with um, uptaking oxygen in the depths. So he kind of has to imagine as this like giant squid fighting, um, I guess just a horse-headed seal of some sort. I think we have yeah. those here. A lot of, you know, the, <laughs> we did a, an episode about Irish lake monsters and a lot of them are the, they have manes, they have horse heads. And I think the reason is that they come from this older folklore, which, you know, they're, they're often called water horses or, you know, that phrase is used and, and then that's how they look sometimes. And, and it, a lot of it comes from like fairy lore and stuff like that. Yeah, he, the book uh, Lake Monster Traditions by uh, McGuire, as uh, he he really goes to town on Hovelman's because uh, Hovelman's does not acknowledge more horses in freshwater bodies, and he's like, no, they they saw almost all the sea serpent types in one one lake in Canada. So Hovelman's is like, yeah, no, it's a deep diving giant squid fighting seal. I'm gonna ignore folklore, and yeah, even in Norse mythology, they for some reason have a lot of horse headed snakes. I think there were even Bibles that had the uh, serpent attempted Adam and Eve as having a horse head. For some reason, he's just he's just not paying attention to that. He's like, no, it is literally, <laughs> it's literally a pen of pen. So did he <laughs> sometimes find himself boxed in by his his like geographical rules? He would say, right, these kind of animals are found here, and then oh, we have a report from another part of the world, and he has to say, oh no, no, that's only that's nonsense. Oh, I don't believe that. Yeah, he has. Oh. The next, the next two, the next two are just total. So he has the super, the super otter, a sea animal of considerable size, comparable with that of the biggest cetaceans, but in general shape more like an otter. Not, of course, that this implies any zoological relationship. So he has, so he sticks this animal. He makes this animal the, uh, the Norse sea serpent, which kind of was like the sea serpent from, I guess, like antiquity to about the 1750s or so. So it's like, it had one big hump and a lot of smaller humps. Oh, so, yeah. okay. But then he has the mini humped, an elongated sea animal of very great size, easily recognizable by the row of mini humps regularly placed along its spine. It's easily recognizable, even though it's the second one that has many humps and he says this one also lives in the north north atlantic but not not in the um just not up that high that's like how cartoonists draw the loch ness monster but i suppose he wouldn't be happy with that because it's in a lake it doesn't it can't be because i'm i'm pretty sure you can you could not expend a lot of energy and find something with a lot of humps everywhere uh when i was a kid living in illinois there was a quarry that had a sighting of many humps no (laughs) i think yeah i i yeah, I think I emailed Lord Coleman back in the day, and I'm like, "Are you? Is this really where that report's coming from?" He's like, oh, "Yeah, the Four Four Lakes Village Quarry, and mostly New England, and um, yeah, I guess it was almost exclusively New England. It was the, it was a different, it was separated because of its, um, I guess not only time period but also culture. It was the first non-Norse outbreak of uh, sea serpent sightings, wow. so he just kind of was like, "Yeah, it's a different species," and. Um, Robert Francis argued that those, yeah, those sightings are probably definitely of just entangled animals, probably possibly tuna and other other creatures. But the thing is, he um, 
he says the super otter he kind of he gets into storytelling it's like the super otter it was on its way out it was an even more primitive whale that looked still looked like an otter and it needed it needed the arctic waters that were a little bit less saline to operate efficiently and i think it's extinct now it's no more so he kind of had these little these little stories that told you he wasn't being the most um he wasn't really being the most uh, objective observer <laughs> because, but it's he's definitely a true believer because he's like he's, he's starting to really, really he really cares about them, hmm. and he definitely believes that there's a distinction. But like, he, like I, I've definitely made albums of like super otter quote unquote drawings and mini hump drawings. I have a personal, my personal favorite sea serpent that I'll have to cover now is. It is the mini-finned, an elongated sea animal of great size, particularly characterized by very peculiar lateral projections, which look like a number of fins. So um, <laughs> this is, it's, it's probably also his biggest mess. He says that this is a giant primitive armored whale. Oh, yes. <laughs> it is, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! I I just have, I have to. I just have to. I know no one can see that. Oh, it but, kind of yeah. looks like um, what's that creature from the Burgess Shale? You know the the Zyla hallucigenia. That really doesn't look like the whale to no. me, um, obviously, in any way. But he goes all the way back to um, oh jeez, Ilian, Alien, whoever that whoever that author was who actually reported a beached something or the other with many projections on its side like um, rose and it had hairs on its nostrils. And I think that, that got stuck into his mind and there was something else. It was called the, um, there's one initial sighting, I guess it was the, was it the princess? I think, so. oh yeah, it was the, the princess sea serpent. And I, I kind of have a hypothesis that he got really fixated on one one sighting and just kind of invented the whole categories from there. But yeah, it's, it definitely formed the nucleus of his oh, illustration. How do I describe this? It looks like, um, uh, like a child's drawing with Sorry. a smiley face. But <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a badass worm with like spiky armor. Yeah, it has kind of a blunt, a blunt head and 12 fins that are sticking out at an absolutely bizarre angle like like what what made him choose one sighting and double down on it and say right this is legit i will therefore tweak you know 10 other sightings to try and you know fit them into this yeah. category because this one sighting is so important there were three i think there were three sightings or so that had the features of like a roundish head with a lot of fins sticking out the back he's like well that pretty much cinches it right there but none of them are that detailed and this one, the uh, the Punha Sea Serpent sighting, actually is aware of the previous sightings too. So that's like oh, kind of a contamination. Big, yeah, it's kind of a big issue right there. So yeah, witness his, contamination. His, his biggest problem is that I would say probably half of the reports do not mention all the fins, and they and there was um, there were sightings off of. Um, in the, uh, uh, this one's called Along Bay now in Vietnam. There were, you know, a lot of French vessels were sighting strange undulating shapes in the water. And he's like, oh, there must be, and 
he concluded it was a mini fin. Like, okay, how could you do that if you don't have the mini fins? And it was because uh, someone else reported a carcass there that was basically, I, I guess it would be like a giant centipede carcass, the Tran Van Kong sighting, which I'm not, probably wasn't transliterated correctly, <laughs> not saying it wrong, but yeah, because of this one sighting, he connected, or because of a stranding, he connected the sightings to it. But the thing is, he doesn't think, he doesn't think that the stranding was a minifin. He hmm. doesn't know what it is. I went, I went through it. And he's like, he says, just question mark. I have to admit, I, in my teenagerhood, I, at various points, completely dissected this book. I took out all the reports. I tried seeing how they fit together. And, oh, man, that is uh, kind of disheartening because I, I had to come to the conclusion that poor poor bernard it, it it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense i hate to dismiss it like that but i'm getting the is. vibe of somebody who has created like you know a fictional universe and they're obsessed with their own canon <laughs> and yeah. they want to keep cre creating like george lucas just wants to keep making more prequels and everybody's asking him to stop <laughs> but he won't <laughs> but the idea that there have been sightings of centipede like creatures stuck for some reason and oh my my only my only complaint about the Crypto's Logicon is that it still has kind of like a mini-finned arthropod-like creature off of Vietnam. I did manage to find another source that talked about the, I talked about French involvement in that bay. And there was apparently just a widespread belief in prehistoric survivors that they thought there were pterodactyls and prehistoric lizards. And it also mentioned strange undulating shapes in the water, which is what the vessels saw. So there's, there's a big story there, and I don't exactly know, but there's all sorts of ships over a number of years. And it seemed like a pretty big deal, but I, they didn't have a lot of fins, so <laughs> I don't know. And then it's it's kind of a, it's a pretty touristy spot, um, Halong Bay. Oh, wait. Oh, I yeah, yeah, I've been there. There's like, you think, you think <laughs> they've noticed the dinosaurs by now. <laughs> yeah, did you see anything unusual? When you were there. It, well, it only had it only had seven humps, not nine, so it doesn't count. It's a different category. Another another great category, which is possibly, if anything, even more of a mess. It's called the super eels. And earlier today, I was I cannot figure out what Bernard was going for. He says he is contradicting himself. He thinks he seems to simultaneously think that there are giant conger eels. There's giant mores and there's giant oceanic eels that could stick straight up in the water like 20 feet make an ambiguous periscope as he as he calls them ambiguous <laughs> periscope yeah <laughs> there's an ambiguous periscope category too yeah, he doesn't know ambiguous periscope <laughs> they're so ambiguous he doesn't know if they're pinnipeds pinnipeds or eels so it's like ah oh, they saw an ambiguous periscope but gee many christmas how can an eel stick 20 20 feet straight out of the water so there was a giant larva that was found that he says like, oh, that must be the marine eel. But then he also thinks that the Stronsa carcass was a giant basking shark. And he kind of hypothesizes that maybe there's giant eel-like basking sharks. And then he also thinks like, maybe they're giant frilled sharks or maybe that they're giant basking moray eels that are 80 feet long or not basking, um, filter feeding 
I can't. I don't know what. He, I cannot figure out what he was hypothesizing. Uh, there seems to have been. I think he said there are at least four different things under that label. Which is why I have to say nine categories with an asterisk because, like, I I can't even. I I've known this book front to back, and I I don't know what his conclusion was. It's so vague to me. Oh, wait a minute. No, I I left out even better parts. He's he hypothesized that maybe. Maybe it could be a giant eel-shaped ray or skate or guitar fish. And I, excuse me, I, I, I don't understand how you can possibly conclude that there is a eel-shaped ray that seems so counterintuitive. And I can't think of a single, I can't think of anything that would, in this book or anywhere that would lead you to that conclusion. Now, for some reason, he thought great white sharks were 65 feet long so he gave them the size of a megalodon he's like ah but there's also megalodons out there um, like well, that's different they're different right they're not the same as yeah. the 65 foot great yeah. whites no he, he thought he thought that the he thought that the great whites are 65 feet and megalodons are 120 feet long this is like Edgar Rice Burroughs levels of just multiplying species. Like there's right. ape men, but there's also monkey men, but there's also cavemen that are not the, you know, like, you don't need this much stuff going on. Yeah. And his, and eventually his, uh, he also believes that there's super giant squid out there. He was talking like, he eventually, he didn't think it was a different species at first, but on his list, he listed a separate. He's like, yeah, it was like 200 feet long. Earlier in the, in, in the wake, he was like, yeah, maybe they're like 500 feet long. It's what, totally, the, what like, size is the colossal squid for the record, just so we have a comparison? Um, oh my God, the colossal squid is maybe about 40 feet with the tentacles outstretched all the way. Right. And that's a little that's, bigger than the giant, isn't it? Arc yeah, the giant. Ducks and something else. Uh, Masani, Masani Chatuthis. Nice. And um, yeah, they're, they're both around 40 feet ish with the tentacles, but. It turns out the tentacles isn't like a really good way to measure them. Hmm. Uh, the mantle mantle length is what they usually go by, and I think Archituthis is maximum like two point three meters. It's like seven feet, seven and a half feet, or something like that. And Masada Chatuthis is three point three meters or so, so ten eleven feet or so, which is huge. That's a big squid. But uh, Bernard was proposing that literally they'd reach what. Um, like 30 meters in mantle length <laughs> and then with tentacles just going on I, I i think when i was in my teenagerhood i just like put it next to the uh, I, um the empire state building as if i was king kong like 500 feet long I'm like oh my god that's literally a kaiju sized monster <laughs> <laughs> that's like how big godzilla is in the latest movies like how how can you think that's real and yeah <laughs> As for sea serpents, like early in the book, he's like, maybe there's 250 foot sea serpents out there. He doesn't go quite that far. He's like, eh, maybe like 110s tops. Not that big, just as big as a blue whale. What are those poor blue whales doing out there when there's sharks <laughs> bigger than them? How does that work? And, <laughs> it's, and then there's, oh yeah, there's like sometimes, sometimes sperm whales they fight with super eels that are a hundred feet long. And there's like, <laughs> there's one sighting that was kind of something wrapped around. Well, I, I, probably a little bit of fishing gear wrapped around a whale, but he's like, no, nah, man, it's like a giant eel fighting a whale. It's 
totally wild down there. Those, <laughs> those academics, their ivory towers. I don't know how to have fun. <laughs> I'll show them all. <laughs> <laughs> right. And his version of showing them all is like, I'm going to write another book. And, Ten more. Write a book. <laughs> I'm going to find newspaper counts. So wild. They're going to have to believe me. <laughs> So, you know, I, I guess I'm like, I'm trying to think as to how I would have taken this as a kid because I didn't didn't have his books. And I, because I've reread, I haven't read The Sea Serpents uh, in the wake of Sea Serpents, but I have read um, Unknown Animals on the trail. And I, I loved it, Cameron. I thought it was great fun. And I know for a fact that if I had read this as a kid, I would have completely bought it because maybe you'll feel differently. Like it, it sounds more sober, like compar- comparatively, it's still... It's still Bernard Huberman's, but it, it's comparatively more sober than this. What you're talking about with the like, he he takes time setting out his stuff and, and explaining like what percentage of each country in the earth in the 50s was not explain, explored. And he he does the standard crypto thing of like here's a bunch of you know large mammals that we didn't discover until relatively late. Which and then he talks about the seligan, then he talks about the okapi. And oh God! Does all the usual all the, the okapi, which becomes the symbol of the organization eventually. Uh, am I right? It, it was, wasn't it? Or somebody yeah, used it. Um, somebody used it as their as somebody. their logo anyway. Wait a minute. Oh and, wait, yeah, the journal, the new journal. Oh, yeah, you've got, the journal. Like, oh, you've got the fee. You've got hard copies. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is the relaunch oh. journal of cryptology, which has a has a king cheetah oh, as its logo for. That's different. I, I forgot <laughs> about that, but yeah, I think they did. Yeah, their symbol is an okapi. International Cryptozoology Museum says steel can. So he, he takes <laughs> his time kind of setting out the stall and getting you to, like, okay, I understand there's all this area that hasn't been explored. I understand that new creatures, sometimes large ones, you know, pop out every once in a while. And then he hits you with the woolly mammoths and the, <laughs> and the you know, Percy Fawcett level snakes and, <laughs> and, and, and everything else. Yeah, oh my God. Pers- oh. And then my favorite was in his new cryptozoology list. He's like, you remember those giant anacondas, 60 feet long? He's like, bro, there's something bigger out there. The Minokao. It's and he says it undulates vertically, so it must be a mammal. So I I kind of think that was part of his world building. I think that's another one of his mammalian sea serpents, because it's like he was so <laughs> fixated on vertical undulation. He's like, Yeah, dude, that's a whale. <laughs> Only a whale can do that. I don't care that it's larger than 60 feet burrowing in the amazon like holy yeah his um i i'd say yeah in the wake of the sea serpents has a little bit more of um it has enough of a scholarly tone to (laughs) fool you and definitely the tone he takes is like oh my god he's so experienced and it's not like it's a big book it's almost 680 pages or so and it is like the necronomicon though you read passages in here like oh my god i feel my brain turning to jelly but he kind of, yeah, he has enough of a lead in. He, he's definitely very story orientated. He, um, he kind of goes chronologically ish. And he's, he's making, yeah, he's like telling you a little story about the super otters. He's like, <laughs> and the, I think that, I think the mini humps aren't doing too well these days either. <laughs> I think we have sea otters or super otters too. There's a, there's a kind of a traditional Irish creature. Oh. Oh no! I, I I wait a minute. Is that the is that the Dovar Chu? Yeah, do Dovar do Ku. I'd say. Oh, but yeah. I can't. I, despite my name, I am completely. 
Celtic language illiterate. Uh, uh. You, you did you did better than most, I think. <laughs> but yeah, his um. But then when you get to his list, he is just like breaks off. He's in six gears. Is like yeah, just getting crazier and crazier. Because yeah, he adds. He starts believing in mer people too. After the publication of um, in the wake of the sea serpents. He, for some reason, picks up on that again. He's like, yeah, there's people for some reason. And then he, uh, in addition to the giant squid, he also adds a uh, giant octopus, the one that I saw in uh, Richard Ellis's book, the back of the book, where he's like, yeah, this carcass. He's like, I'm going to publish this book concurrently with a study that proves it's not a, not a giant octopus. Oops. <laughs> but yeah, 200-foot span. What the heck? But yeah, I was, I was a kid. I was a kid living in Illinois, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so ignorant. I'm going to believe anything about the oceans. So did you, did you love this stuff and, and swallow it completely? or did Because you, you also said you took the book apart. and like Yeah, it was a little bit later. I, I definitely did at about like 12 to 13. Like, yeah, this is like the family Bible. I'd go in there and be like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm gonna. But then I loved it. I loved it so much. I, I, I picked it apart. I'm like, oh, I want to learn. I want to learn more about why there's giant eel, eel-like skates, or rays, <laughs> or whatever he said. And I'm like, oh no, oh dear, it doesn't make a lick of sense. I was just out of my own curiosity to learn more. I I cried just a little too much, and <laughs> I, I pushed a little too hard, and it turns out it's a house of cards, and it <laughs> collapsed. It turns out it's just a bunch of scattered garbage, garbage <laughs> reports from newspapers underground. I don't want to be that cynical, but that's it's it's okay. So this this like this alters my thinking a bit because I I don't know. I I read I read his earlier book and maybe I'm I'm wondering now who his audience is, right? So there's different kinds of there's different kinds of cryptozoology people, and there's there's like Grover Kranz, who's like there is one Bigfoot, if that, and he only lives in the Pacific Northwest, and I will disregard out of hand any reports that come from anywhere else because that's just stupid. And then there's yeah. you know there's like two or three kinds of Bigfoot, and you know they're broadly different based on you know whether they're from the north or the south or the west. And then there's like oh every country has its own type of Bigfoot, like where does he fit um, into all this? <laughs> like who's listening to him? what's his relationship with people in the in the society like do they think he's legit or like i'm gonna be honest with you i think uh from what i can tell my involvement on the internet i was his only acolyte in the late 90s and early 2000s i don't think anyone else believed this literally and there was uh there was something else in the um in the journal where people tried tried using australian sightings and using his classification system and there were things with like i think they had like mini humps there and like oh what the hell is mini hump doing here they had things with dazzle camouflage and they're like oh that doesn't really fit so even even afterwards it didn't really i i don't think anyone yeah really used it i don't see people talking about these categories the way they like you know the way some stuff just goes into the culture like everyone knows like alien greys are come from Zeta Reticuli. Like that has just absorbed into the culture or, you know, certain, you know, Bigfoot looks in a certain way. Or if he's from the South, he's more like a swamp ape. And if he's in the West, he's more like your Sasquatch. And like, those are kind of 
ac- accepted kind of stereotypes now, and I don't I don't hear anybody talking about these categories. <laughs> Mini fins and super otters. Yeah, it um, it's a it's a failed hypothesis, even in cryptozoology. Sorry to say that um, it's I don't think anyone believes in it, and it did have. The um, Lord Coleman and um, Patrick Hugh—I've <laughs> never said that name before. They also—they published a book that um, it, it was—it had a similar categorization, but a little bit simplified. It had the—they um, kind of rolled a lot of the sea serpents into one thing, and they—they uh, they merged the the seals. They merged the long neck and the bird horse, and but and then they—they they had the mini fin too, and they're like, yeah, I don't know, yeah, this thing's it's a little little sketch. So it's like kind of trying to to make Hulvamans a little bit more palatable, but <laughs> I don't I don't think it really worked. I'm getting and, the feeling um, that like he's he's remembered and and he's remembered fondly, and he is you know they like they call him the father of cryptozoology. That that means something more because he was that guy who was there at the time. He was the first person who started doing it, you know, with, with a focus, and he gave it a name and. and and now he's like the embarrassing uncle who's still at the party yeah. decades later. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the impression I got. I've been reading through a lot of the letters in the, uh, in the journal. And yeah, it, it seems that there's a lot of, he's, he's definitely in a weird place because there's actual, there's like legit scientists who are curious about cryptozoology. And then there's the, the fringe. And he doesn't really fit in with no. either of those. He's, he's a hopeless He's a hopeless monster. He's, he's not. He's not. Of... He's, you wouldn't say he's. He's not woo. He's not like paranormal creature. Yeah. Or, or is he? Does he have that side to him that I don't know about? He definitely got really heavy into Buddhism in later in his life, but I don't. I can't detect any any strand of spirituality in his works. It oh, he's, like he's an old fashioned, you know, flesh and blood creatures cryptozoologist. He just. He had just had no no rules about, or he'd had rules, yeah. but he had no, no restraint about multiplying creatures. Oh my God! Yeah, way beyond the carrying capacity of our of our planet. But I think um, I think not to go on too too much of a tangent here, but there was there was a, a sequel of sorts to him that somehow added way more sea serpents. But it was Bruce Champagne and. I know about it because uh, I actually illustrated all the sea servants for him as he was publishing. So, oh my God, he has so many. There's multiples and stuff, but that that it's I don't man, it's it's tough with people that are alive. But yeah, I wouldn't say that his work brought up to. It doesn't seem like it made too much of a splash. It's it seems that if people are interested in sea monsters these days, it's just like maybe marine reptiles. Like those darn those darn English Victorian naturalists, they won. Rubens <laughs> was trying to yeah, he was, he was trying, trying to spice to things it. up. And damn it, we've we've gone back to the boring British way of of you know, there's one sea serpent, there's one Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, and then I think one book that might have had a little bit of his DNA, his book's DNA that is, um, is a book that was. I think only available in Iceland called Meeting with Monsters, and it cites him, and it does have a whole bunch of like pretty much mammalian sea monsters, and it's but it's definitely from um, it was sourced from 
all Icelandic material. And like, yeah, they're stuff like mer horses and red crest and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's kind of it looks a little bit like his stuff, but it's it's definitely its own thing. And it's really I don't know what the heck it's citing. It's totally it's totally locked up somewhere in Icelandic archives, its materials, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's it's a really I don't think I have it. Darn, I don't have it offhand. But uh, it's a pretty good book. If if you can find it, it's it's a pretty interesting line between it. It has all the accounts, and it has speculative zoology, but it doesn't make the claim that it's real. Which seems like if that's how I would write a Fuvelman's book today, I'd probably go that way of just hmm. speculating and using his springboards, but also like not taking it too seriously he's not in a niche that seems to have any sort of future it's just too it's too speculative and wild for zoology but it's it's also like too academic for probably like any casual cryptozoologist because this tone is pretty academic like stentorial throughout the book he makes these proclamations and like oh man this dude knows what he's talking about yeah he's really fixated on fossil whales and he I, i think to show to show his relation to them to the literature, his his uh, many humped and many finned are are fossil whales with scales. So even when he was writing that, it was no longer believed. And in the book, he's just like, "But what if I believe it anyways?" <laughs> it essentially seems to be his point. And there's there's um a there is a species of porpoise, a living species of porpoise that has like really unusual skin and almost looks like little bricks and he's like ah that's the remnants of armor from its ancestors like yeah i don't know about that but yeah that was kind of his uh opening into there he definitely has anecdotes that i have literally never heard anywhere else he's like ah the, the pygmy the pygmy right whale it's an animal we barely know it gets up to 60 feet long and i have i have spent way too much time in the uh, pygmy right whale whittle- literature like it's not the slightest hint of anyone ever saying that. And he, he doesn't provide a citation, of course. There was, it was the Tizharuk, which I'm also not saying right, seen off of like the Pacific Northwest, but the, the higher one, like off of Alaska. It's like, ah, what if that's a juvenile Basilosaurus? So it's that's another a, a paleo pa- wait, whale, it whale yeah. isn't it? With, with limbs, fight, like with legs? Yeah. It has yeah. um, it has it has limbs about like the size of a human hand or so. Right, yeah, they're pretty dinky. But yeah, he was hypothesized like yeah, it's just a juvenile vet. But then his sea serpents are also they're like neo basilosauruses that are all have all sorts of fancy stuff like humps and many fins. But then there's like I don't know. I guess he's implying there's baseline ones that are out there as well. It's so interesting <laughs> how he's like simultaneously fundamental but also sidelined. Isn't there now an English translation of his book about the living Neanderthals? I don't have it with me. I do have it though. <laughs> I didn't bring it into my cat-free room here, but and the, yeah, the Minnesota Ice Man is like one of the main bits of it. Yeah, it's and they um, named Bozo. Why did how what an awful name? Why did they do that? He definitely was saying things in that book that he um was this was never really discussed before in cryptozoology because one of his um one of his mentors, I can't remember his name, of course, but he believed in initial bipedalism. So he thought that 
our the ancestor of all vertebrates, so like fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, looked like a little person. <laughs> That's the humans are the like most primitive state for all vertebrate life. So he Bernard Huevelmans believed that the Minnesota ice fin was a Neanderthal that reverted or, or no, it, it reverted, it dehumanized. It's it started off more human-like, but then delicate like that. And um, he also was quite adamant that um, it was never replaced by a model. And that was something him and Sanderson disagreed on that like Sanderson and other cryptozoologists thought it got changed, but he was like adamant it was the same thing. And even in the book's introduction by Lauren Coleman, he says like, oh yeah, I got changed out by a model. Everyone knows that. Yeah. And the book itself, he's like, it was never changed. It was always Bozo. Oh my God. So he actually disagreed, like the, the foreword and the book disagree about this? Yeah. It, it had editorializing of the contents that disagree with its own message, which is really bizarre to me. I've never really read into that before. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure, and I don't know if anyone's, I don't know if anyone's said this, but like, I'm pretty sure the Minnesota Iceman is a joke about Bigfoot because apparently the feet of it were 10 inches wide. So it had gigantic hands too that were like a foot, like 14 inches or a baseball catcher mitt size. I'm pretty sure the model for that has been found in a in it a freezer. Sold, it sold a few a few years ago. It was auctioned or something. Yeah, it showed up on a TV show in some storage container. And it really does have like the most freakishly oversized hands and feet. Can you imagine being in that trailer? Like, and what was the guy's name? Hanson? Was it Fred, Fred Hanson? Was the, the showman who owned it? And like these two guys come down to check it out. And like, I'm, I'm convinced that Sanderson is like, this is this is great. This is going to make us a million bucks. Is it real? Don't care. And, and he was like, this is it. We've got it. It's real. I couldn't imagine the bafflement of you make a funny model that doesn't make any sense zoologically. You have two zoologists come and look at it, and they're like, "Oh man, <laughs> totally." They're just not critical at all. What? The and it's it's two been... years after the Patterson Gimlin film, approximately. Oh, yeah, which Bernard Hoovermans thought was a costume. Yes, he did. Like, wait, what does he? That I'm very. You know what? I actually don't even know where he thought the Minnesota ice band came from. Oh, because that story he... changed so many times. It's yeah. Frank, uh, you're, the, the guy Hansen had a different story like every five minutes. I can't. In Vietnam or it came from Hong Kong or it came from Russia. Or even Minnesota. Yeah, eventually eventually the, it kind of settled. The story kind of settled <laughs> in Minnesota with a hunting but, a hunting story. Oh my God. I don't actually know if someone thought it was from Minnesota or not. You might, I think he thought it was from Vietnam. I think that oh, story geez. came later because somebody, a woman gave a report in a paper saying that she'd been attacked and in, in like Bemidji or someplace like that. And then uh, I, I think they got, they needed to get on board then. And they, they kind of, Hanson kind of co-opted it and said, oh, you know, actually I shot it after it attacked somebody. <laughs> I don't know. His, his story went all over the place so many times. It's like we were meaning to smuggle opiates from Vietnam, but we actually smuggled a, a hominid. <laughs> why would, gee, many Christmas, why would you, if North America has hominids, uh, you, you get a specimen of a diff, totally, totally unrelated hominid from a different continent. I in... think because he was a fairground attraction guy and he had to <laughs> prove, that's why. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, that is, 
yeah, that's not very, that's not very parsimonious now. Like, is it? It's like, <laughs> that, that seems like kind of a needless step. Yeah. Well, oh my God. Oh. I better God. bring us, I better bring us to some kind of close. Um, yeah. <laughs> is there any, is there anything online that you've, you'd like to direct people towards anything, anything you're working on or like your, your blog is cool. It has, I know it's old, but it has a lot of good stuff on it and it's pretty amazing as well. I'll, um, I'll, I'll post something. I'll, I'll try and come up with something that has all of my information on it that you could link to. I'll, cool. It's it's kind of scattered all over the internet right now. So I'll, yeah, um, you've done some audio stuff, some some um, artistic stuff, some some write written material, and uh, I'll put links in the notes to whatever you'd like people to see. I'm even going to dig out the old GeoCities website that I made that has oh. an old shame just for you to see <laughs> old Cameron's cryptozoology page. I should still edit that one because <laughs> I was like, I remember I was big on like. I'm like, I'm going to prove Bernard Hoovelman's giant eel-like basking shark too for him. He didn't look into it closely enough, but I think I can do it. Can I describe <laughs> you in my opening as his, his disciple? <laughs> his only, happy. His, his literalist disciple for probably a year and a half, two years or so. <laughs> and then he, uh, yeah, it doesn't work out for us. I wish I, wish I made contact with him. That would have that really been great. Well, we'll, we'll hold out hope for the mer people. I know it's it's still a, you know, like it's still an open field. It's an open question, I'd say. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amran, thanks so much for talking, and I had a lot of a lot of fun, and uh, I learned I learned a lot of things as well, which is how I like it Thank to you be. Very much. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode, folks. Uh, as I said, huge thanks to Cameron for coming on and being a good sport. As I always say, it it takes a true fan, I think, to uh, poke a little fun at something that you do love. Uh, as always, you can support the show over at Buy Me a Coffee forward slash White Atlantic, and you can say hello over on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or Instagram where we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. As always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.